Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Good evening. Our scripture tonight will be from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. And if you'd like to follow along in your pew Bible, it's page 1039. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Good evening. This evening we are continuing our series that we have been uh, pursuing uh, for a couple of weeks entitled One, where we are focused on uh, verses 4 through 6, where we, were look, we are looking at the seven ones of true religion. And we have come this far in our progress through this passage that tonight we're going to talk about the subject of baptism. It is heartbreaking to me, to be honest, that there is such confusion and division in the world of those who believe in and trust in Jesus regarding baptism, considering how very vital and important and essential a doctrinal subject that it is. It continues to be one of the few doctrines in the Bible that are so important that it keeps us distance uh, from some others that love Jesus, that we would love to be in closer fellowship with, and keeps us divided from some that we would love to have a better relationship with as members of the family of God through Jesus Christ. But it is a subject, like all of the seven in this passage, that we cannot afford to compromise on in the very least. These seven uh, doctrinal subjects that Ephesians 4, 4 through 6 highlights are absolute essential fundamental doctrines of the faith. They are the seven ones of true religion. There is one body, that is the church of our Lord, and there is one spirit, the Holy Spirit, who temples or tabernacles within the church and within each one of our bodies as baptized believers. There is one hope. The, the hope that the gospel points us to of resurrection from the dead and eternal life with glory in the Lord in a perfect world uh, that belongs to our call. One Lord, Jesus our Lord, one faith, the faith that is in Jesus Christ, one baptism, our subject for tonight, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Lord willing, we will talk about next Sunday morning. We're going to think about the subject of baptism tonight and try to identify what the one baptism that Ephesians 4, 4 through 6 talks about actually is. And it's an important question to ask, what is, which is the one baptism that is essential to the unity of the church of our Lord? Consider that there are seven that are mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, you will see what looks like six, but I'll explain to you what the seventh is as we go through these. We read about the baptism of Moses. Uh, the ancient Israelites were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea as God parted the Red Sea and he passed over in front of them in the form of the cloud during the day. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 2, the Apostle Paul brings that up. There's John's baptism, and this is where they're two and one. Because Jesus' baptism at the hands of John 
Well, it's a subject all on its own as compared to the rest of the folks in Israel that were baptized by John. So we're going to call that two. John's baptism of Jesus, Matthew 3, 13 through 17, and uh, John's baptism of others, Matthew 3, verse 2, and many other passages in the Gospels. Baptism of fire. Matthew 3.11, this was one of the baptisms that John the Baptist warned uh, the people of Israel about. The one coming after him was mightier than, he, than him, John said. He, John said he was not wor- worthy to stoop down and unloose the, uh, the, the latch of his sandal, the strap of his sandal, meaning that he wasn't worthy to wash Jesus' feet which in that culture, the washing of feet was considered the job of the lowest ranking servant in a household. And so when John says, I'm not worthy to stoop down and take his sandals off, he's saying, I'm not worthy to serve Jesus in the lowest and most menial of ways. That was John's humility with regard to Jesus. And we ought to have the same mentality. So he warned that the one who came after him would baptize in the Holy Spirit and fire. We'll talk about Holy Spirit in a minute. But the baptism of fire is Gehenna. It is the hell of fire. It is being cast in, immersed into the fire of destruction and punishment. That certainly can't be the one baptism of, of, uh, that unifies us as believers in Christ. That of all the baptisms we might read about in the New Testament is the one that we wish to avoid absolutely the most. All right? And so there's the baptism of suffering. Uh, when uh, the sons uh, of uh, uh, thunder, James and John, came with their mother to Jesus uh, looking for special places of privilege at Jesus' right hand and left at his table in his coming heavenly kingdom, Jesus asked them a question. If they were able to be baptized with the baptism with which he was going to be baptized, meaning suffering, laying down his life for the sake of, of serving his God and Father. And they said, we are able. And then there in Matthew 10, 39, Jesus said, you will be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized. In other words, they would, they would be baptized, immersed in suffering, meaning that their lives would be completely consumed in the suffering that they would have to endure for the sake of the gospel. And of course, James was one of the first martyred. John was the last living apostle, but he lived his last years in exile because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And so they both experienced the baptism of suffering. And in the ancient world, we can find some teachers in the first few centuries of Christianity because of how severe the persecution of the Roman Empire was on the church that would uh, debate whether or not someone who at the last minute, when faced with that question, do you believe in Jesus, even though they may have never professed faith, never have been baptized in water, but at the last minute uh, when they're put to the test, do you believe in Jesus, they might say yes and might be executed and folks would reason, well, maybe that baptism of suffering then would be enough for them. Of course, there's no biblical basis for that. But that is one of the baptisms that is mentioned in the New Testament. Of course, baptism in the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1 verse 5, Jesus promised to the 12 that uh, they were to remain in Jerusalem because they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from then. And then, of course, there is believers' baptism in water or water baptism. And, And so these are the seven baptisms we read about in the New Testament. But when we get to the book of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, we read that phrase that we just read a moment ago, also had it read in the scripture reading, there is one baptism. And so when we read about seven different baptisms, we need to ask the question, well, which one of them is the one baptism that is so vital to our salvation and to our fellowship in Christ? 
The whole context of Ephesians 4 are about these truths that unite us together in fellowship in one body as God's people. These seven teachings are fundamental to the unity of the Spirit that we are to preserve in the bond of peace. And so without these seven ones, the Spirit has not brought us into unity, the unity of, his, of him, Himself, the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, okay, so anytime we're thinking about a subject... We want to understand, you know, the truth about it. There's a little interpretive principle that you all, many of you at least, have heard me mention a number of times, and that is called the law of first mention. The law of first mention is a principle that says that the first time a term or an idea is introduced in Scripture, whatever it means in that context becomes its normative or controlling meaning. Because that's the first time that the Holy Spirit saw to it to reveal something about it. Whatever it means in that context, that's what it's going to continue to mean unless a later context gives you some additional revelation to say something like, yes, before it meant this, but right here now in this context I'm meaning something else. And so if we read about the subject of baptism, whatever baptism is the first time we encountered in Scripture, that becomes the normative or controlling meaning of baptism. And so as we go through the rest of the New Testament, you know, if, if, if a passage does not mean the same thing that that meant, then there needs to be something in the context to, to clue us in on that. Well, of course, that brings up the question of, well, which passage in the New Testament was the first one written that mentions baptism? And I can't actually really answer that question objectively. In fact, there is nobody in Christendom from pole to pole, from east to west, that can with authority tell you which book of the Bible was written, which book of the New Testament was written first. No one can. There is no consensus. I challenge you to look online and find consensus on what order the books of the New Testament were written. And you will find qualified scholars who will give you a bunch of different orders of things because the ultimate situation is they do not know. It is highly likely, however, that James was the first of the New Testament books written. Can't prove it. Probably true. No specific mention of baptism there. So that doesn't help. Following James, it is also quite possible that Galatians was the first one of Paul's letters and, and maybe the second book of the New Testament that was written. And so we might look at Galatians. Galatians does, in fact, have a very important uh, baptism passage. So I'm going to ask you to turn there with me to Galatians uh, chapter 3. We're going to look there at verse 27. This is on page 1035 in your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along in that. We're actually going to look at both verses 26 and 27 in order to get the context here. The Apostle Paul writes, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. All right? So, we have in this context two four statements, the beginning of verse 26 and the beginning of verse 27. And this is because it flows from the context that proceeds, which is Paul's allegory about uh, the law being our schoolmaster, our guardian until Christ, our teacher, came. And, and verse 25 says, after faith has come, we're no longer under that tutor. So we are actually our sons and daughters of God. We're no longer uh, children that are under these servants tutoring us, protecting us until we come of age. That's the contextual idea of this passage. 
And so Paul is saying that all through the centuries of God's dealings with Israel, the law of Moses was like this servant assigned to guard the children until they came of age. And they couldn't really act with freedom until they came of age. And so now that Christ has come, the true teacher is here. No longer are we under this guardian servant. We have become actual full-fledged sons and daughters of God. For the word there in verse 26, which tells us how this transition has happened. Well, what has caused us spiritually to grow up? For, he says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. It's faith that enables us to grow up. Faith in Christ Jesus makes men and women of God out of all who embrace that faith and who embrace Jesus and trust. And then we have another word for, meaning not an additional thing, and I want to stress that, not an additional thing, but another way of saying the same thing. Listen, verse 27, not an additional thing. I have seen commentators in our brotherhood making verses 26 and 27 talk about as if it's two different things. It's not two different things. It's two different ways to talk about the same thing. All right? So how did we grow up and become free sons and daughters of God? Through faith in Jesus. For we're all sons of God through faith in Jesus. For, again, verse 27, look, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So how did I become a son of God through faith? By being baptized. That's how. Salvation is not, and I'm going to repeat this before this lesson is done. Salvation is not. The plan of salvation is not faith plus baptism. Belief plus baptism, yes. But belief alone is not saving faith. And because some of our brothers have argued the plan of salvation that says faith plus baptism, they have found themselves in the unenviable position of having to defend salvation on the basis of works. This is why we have friends out there in Christendom who accuse us of teaching a works-based salvation. Some of it is our own fault for not communicating things clearly and with the right biblical words and terms. We are not saved by faith plus anything. We are saved by grace through faith, period. And Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 makes it absolutely clear that if you say we're saved by grace through faith plus something else, you are a false teacher. You're teaching false doctrine. Salvation is not faith plus baptism. Baptism is faith. It is faith in action. It is faith acted out. It is faith alive. It is faith living. It is faith being demonstrated. But baptism most certainly falls under the heading of faith. It is not an addition to faith. It is a part of faith. You are not saved by faith until you're baptized into Christ. And that is the teaching of, Acts, of, sorry, of Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27. And I mean this in kindness, but I do intend to be bold. Anyone who doesn't understand this doesn't understand the gospel plan of salvation. It's as simple as that. All right? But Galatians 3 doesn't give us a definition of which baptism this is. <laughs> and so we're, we're back to square one with trying to use the law of first mention to help us to understand, is it baptism in the Holy Spirit? It's certainly not baptism in fire. Is it water, believer's water baptism? Those are questions that are still left on the table. And the reason is, whether the Gospels were written before Galatians or not, I kind of believe they were. But scholars are divided on that, and I can't prove it. 
But regardless of when the Gospels were written, brothers and sisters, listen to me. The teachings of the Gospel were widely disseminated throughout the church. And so Galatians is written into a community of believers who know the truths that we have today in the Bible written in written form in the four Gospels. And so regardless of whether the Gospels were written before the letters or not, their teaching holds a primary place above the letters, previous to the letters, superior to the letters. The book of Acts flows from the Gospels, and the letters find their place in the narrative of the book of Acts and flow from that. And so if we're going to use the principle of the law of, of first mention, we actually are going to have to go to the Gospels in order to see what baptism actually means if we're thinking about the one baptism that saves and the one baptism that unifies. Well, now once again we come to a problem. Which Gospel was written first? Well, the majority of Bible scholars say that Mark was the first gospel written. Now they say that because of the presuppositions of what is called higher criticism or form criticism, which has been the dominant method of studying the scripture at a scholarly level ever since the early 1800s. It is faded now uh, because literary criticism has begun to take its place, which by the way is a good thing. It's a good thing. But form criticism is based, it, it just is the same way that all kinds of literature has been studied for the past 200 years or so. And it is the idea that, well, let's just look at, let's, let's look at the way this thing is put together and let's try to, to uh, analyze the way it's put together and form some conclusions for that. And the idea is that uh, an ancient document had its original form. And then redactors or editors over the years, sometimes the decades, sometimes the centuries, would edit that. They would sometimes take a, a statement that might not have been clear, and, and they would sometimes uh, try to expand on that in order to make the teaching clearer to those that came in later generations. And, and so the idea of these scholars that hold the form criticism will say, Mark has got to be the oldest because, because it is the shortest and straightest to the point and does not bother to explain things as much as the other Gospels do. And so Matthew had to have looked at Mark's Gospel and said, this is good, but I was there. <laughs> and so I'm going I'm to expand on this. And that's the idea that they're putting across. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's true. I tend to believe Matthew probably was first. But I have no reason to prove. I'm just telling you my opinion. It doesn't matter. John, I know, was last. That's what I know. <laughs> Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I don't know which one was really first. Nor does it matter. Because when you get into the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, whichever one was written first, the first time you encounter baptism in those books, it is, of course, John's baptism. In the context of Jesus' baptism, which, by the way, brothers and sisters, is the pattern that we are following and imitating in our Christian baptism today. And the first time baptism is thus mentioned in the Gospels, it is water baptism, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in water, symbolic of being cleansed from sin and being born again into a renewed or a new life. Therefore, baptism in water, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, in water, a symbolic cleansing, which is more about the spiritual cleansing that God is doing actually during the event, that becomes the normative truth about what baptism is. 
as we follow the principle or the passages of baptism throughout the remainder of the Bible. You see the passages there on the screen. I'm not going to read Matthew 3, 1 and 5, and Mark 1, 4 and 5 for the sake of time, but you have the reference there if you would like to study them in more detail. And so we summarize here uh, what the one baptism has is, is got to be. The one baptism is believer's immersion in water as an expression of genuine faith in the good news of Jesus Christ. So I want to spend the rest of our time this evening arguing with some objections that are often raised to this teaching, all right? The first objection is this. Simply stated, baptism is a work. Brothers and sisters, if baptism is a work, if it is a work of merit, if it is a work of law, even if it is a work of faith in the, in the sense that this is something that we're responsible for, we've got to accomplish somehow in order to meet some kind of bar, some kind of, uh, of, of uh, work-based idea that the Lord is wanting us to fill up the measure of. If baptism is a work on our part, then it can in no way be essential to salvation. And it cannot possibly be the point that one is saved if baptism is a work in this sense. And so because many folks have been led to believe that baptism is something that is additional uh, to faith, something that is added to faith, they've come to this conclusion that baptism is a deed of work, and therefore we ought not to be terribly unkind to them if they have decided then that baptism can't possibly be essential to salvation, because they're simply following what they believe to be faithful interpretation of Scripture. However, I believe that they have made some mistakes that need to be corrected. We read in Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12, In Him, that is Christ, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. I want you to take careful note of this language. The effect on you, the spiritual effect that baptism has had on you was made without hands. It's not a human work, see. That's the idea that Paul is getting across in Colossians 2, 11 and 12. By putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, it is Christ's authority that enables the work that takes place in baptism to be done. It is not your work, it is His work that is taking place when you are baptized into Christ. Having been buried with Him, do you see the passive language there? This is something that is done to you, not something that you are doing or accomplishing or acting out that you would deserve any kind of merit from or be owed any kind of, of wages from. This is something being done to you. You are submitting to a work being done upon you when you're baptized into Christ, in which you were also raised with Him, how? Through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. The only thing that makes baptism anything is faith. Baptism is faith. It is alive faith, living faith. It, it is faith that is being demonstrated to God. It, 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 by receiving in yourself, submitting to this act of surrender to God. And we see in this passage that the work that is done in baptism is not one that is done with human hands. This passage teaches us baptism is not a work. We read also in John 6, verses 28 and 29, a passage you would do well to take note of and make sure it is firmly in your memory banks if you're going to think about the gospel plan of salvation. And they said to him, to Jesus, what do we do? What must we do to be doing the works of God? Notice this. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now listen, in our everyday communications... 
we use a lot of different words in a lot of different ways. Sometimes if we were to be, you know, if someone were to be recording everything we said, every sentence we said, everything that we've written down, and they were to try to, to put that into sort of a, a cage and say that, well, every time you use this word, it's got to be used this act this exactly the same way. And there can be no variation in that. And, well, if you use this word in two different ways, well, you're contradicting yourself and you can't possibly be telling the truth. Now, none of us, none of us could stand up against that kind of scrutiny. Because that's just not the way words work, brothers and sisters. It's not because we're so inconsistent or we're so terrible at communication. Some of us may be. Some of us may be great at it. But that's not the point. It's not the way human communication works. Man, we can, you know, we can squeeze about a thousand meanings out of a single word with inflections, with different facial expressions, with different contexts, with different sentence structures about it. And the context determines what's going on in this passage. Now, Jesus in this passage is not telling us that, that somehow we're going to work our way to heaven or earn our way into his grace, because if Jesus means literally here that believing in him is working, then we have a contradiction between Jesus and Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, which we do not have. Now, first of all, in this passage, I believe what he's, he's giving us a kind of a twofold meaning here. There, there, it's a, it's a, it's a double-edged knife or a, a coin with two sides. What he's saying is that the work that God expects of you is work that he is going to accomplish through you. Even coming to believe, listen, brothers and sisters, even coming to believe in Jesus Christ unto salvation is simply a yielding to the work that God is doing on you not something you have invented and come up with and accomplished in your own fleshly power. But regardless of how you come to belief, he says, if you've come to belief, you're doing what God wants you to do. And that's the meaning of this passage. And so putting these two things together, I just want to say that baptism is no more of a work than believing is. And if you're going to argue that baptism is a work and therefore baptism, you know, in water cannot be the one baptism of Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, then you're going to have to say believing can't even be a fundamental of the faith. And you're just going to find your whole world crumbling around you if you're going to be that foolish. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just I'm telling you the truth. And so baptism is as much a work as believing is. And if, you're not, if you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you cannot be saved. If you're not baptized into Christ, you have not obeyed the gospel, and that's just the simple truth. Now, this morning I introduced what I don't have time to delve into at length tonight, but the chiastic structure of Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. It's a poetic way of, of Paul communicating these seven principles, all focused on Jesus at the center of it all. We noticed this morning that Paul parallels hope and faith, but tonight I want us to notice how Paul parallels spirit and baptism. Those of you that have been here regularly, you've heard me several times in talking about the subjects of the Holy Spirit and of baptism and, and highlighting just how many times in the New Testament we see the Holy Spirit and water, the Holy Spirit and baptism, the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration and water constantly being compared together in so many texts throughout the New Testament. There are several on your screen that we'll talk about in just uh, a moment. And so confusion about baptism in and of or by the Holy Spirit is another objection that folks raise today. 
Anytime you have a passage in the New Testament that seems to say that being baptized is the point of salvation or baptism is essential for salvation, you have some folks that believe in Jesus saying, oh, that's Holy Spirit baptism, not water baptism. And they say that for the same reason that they would say that water baptism is a work, because they've embraced the truth of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Kudos to them or upon them for that. But they have misunderstood where baptism fits into that. And so thinking that baptism has got to be a work of merit, a work of obeying the law, or something like that, they conclude that, it, it, that water baptism can't possibly be this. And therefore, if a passage says that baptism is essential, it can't be water baptism, because that would be works-based salvation. So it's got to be baptism in the Holy Spirit. That's the line of reasoning that they follow. And I hope that makes sense. I know I'm going through this quickly because... We don't have enough time really to develop this as much as I'd like to. But here are some passages in which we see the inseparable relationship between the Holy Spirit and water baptism. John 3 verse 5, born of the water and of the Spirit, the two working together in baptism. Acts 2.38, uh, let every one of you repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, baptism and the Holy Spirit's work joined together in that context. Acts chapter 10, the household of Cornelius, the only time that we know of in the whole history of God's work with mankind in which he allowed the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon folks before they even believed the gospel, much less were baptized. But when we look at the context of Acts chapter 10 and 11, we realize that this was an exception to the rule that God allowed in order to teach Peter and the Jews a lesson. And that lesson that he wanted them to be taught was that the Gentiles could be baptized into Christ as they were without receiving circumcision or becoming Jews, proselytes, or uh, declaring that they were going to obey the law of Moses anymore. And so that context, when properly understood, actually, again, shows us the inseparable relationship between the Holy Spirit and baptism. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, in or by one spirit, you were all baptized into one body and made to drink of one spirit. Again, we have the Holy Spirit and baptism working together inseparably in this context. Titus 3 verse 5, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. I bring these passages up just to show you how closely tied together the Spirit and the water are throughout the New Testament. So should it surprise us that when Paul by the Holy Spirit was poetically, chiastically organizing these seven ones of true religion in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, that he would parallel the one Spirit and the one baptism? No, it actually makes perfect sense. And the teaching there is profound. Here, here is the simplest way I can summarize this, and I'll teach more about Holy Spirit baptism specifically, Lord willing, in another lesson at another time. But while those baptized in water as believers can rightly say they have been baptized in, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, they have been baptized in, the Greek preposition, epsilon nu, in the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit baptism as distinct from believers' baptism in water came with supernatural powers and experiences that did not reoccur after Acts chapter 10. They cannot, it cannot be commanded. You can't command someone to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Baptism in the Holy Spirit is an act of the Holy Spirit that cannot be forced, that cannot be contrived, that cannot be earned or bought or accomplished in any way by human will or effort. It cannot be commanded, and it has no stated connection to salvation in the Scriptures. Based on Peter's statement in Acts eleven fifteen, 15, it had not even occurred for about a decade 
when it happened to Cornelius' household. But between Acts 2 and Acts 10, the two times in the book of Acts we read about baptism in the Holy Spirit, thousands had been saved and added to the church knowing only water baptism. So I ask you the question then, what was the one baptism that united those thousands of believers between those two instances of special Holy Spirit baptism? It wasn't Holy Spirit baptism as distinct from water baptism. It was believers' baptism in water because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Reasoning from the Scriptures, we come to what I believe here is a sound conclusion. And so, the second objection is not a good objection. The Spirit and baptism are inseparable. But Holy Spirit baptism as distinct from believers' baptism in water cannot be the one baptism that unites all believers. Finally, the third objection. Baptism alone has no power to save and therefore cannot be an essential part of the plan of salvation. All right? Let's think about this objection just for a moment. 1 Peter 3, verses 20 and 21. I just lay the Word of God open before you, before your eyes, for you to consider carefully with an open mind. We break into the context in verse 20, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Listen to the text. During the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. What are we talking about in, second, in 1 Peter 3? We're talking about water, right? We're talking about the flood about people being saved by the ark of safety being moved through the water to salvation. That, that's the, the backdrop of this passage. That's the illustration that Peter is using. The Old Testament story that he's showing is finding its fulfillment in the New Testament system. And so flowing from that statement, water, from that word water, the passage continues, corresponding to that. To what? Salvation through water. Corresponding to salvation th through water, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. Again, it's a washing. Peter needs to explain. It's not about the physical washing. Although you're being dunked in water, it's a spiritual thing that's happening. An appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, it's hard to misunderstand this passage. It's hard to say, well, that's got to be Holy Spirit baptism. It can't be water baptism. It cannot be anything other than water baptism, brothers and sisters. It can't be anything other than water baptism. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. So I've got two passages that I want to close with tonight. I, I'm actually not going to look at this one because I don't have time really. But you ought to study 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 17 and, and learn to deal with the things that Paul says about not, not coming to, to baptize but to preach the gospel. You know, the objection is this, that baptism alone has no power to save and therefore it cannot be an essential part of the plan of salvation. And the Apostle Paul in essence says that very thing by implication in 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 17. What's the point in dunking somebody if they don't believe? Now remember when I began to reason on this subject in the beginning of this sermon, I said very clearly that baptism is faith. It is faith alive, faith moving, faith in action, faith being demonstrated. So, so baptism is only baptism if it is done in faith, by faith, through faith, for faith, as faith. That's the only reason it's anything. Now we go out in the community with a shotgun and baptize 50 people tonight before the police show up. Not a one of them would actually be baptized into Christ. 
Because the water doesn't do it. It is an essential part of faith. Faith being demonstrated before God, who himself, by Jesus' authority, by means of the work of the Holy Spirit, will do what baptism does. And that's the point Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 17. I do want to, to close with Romans chapter 6. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles there. But here it is. Baptism alone isn't baptism at all. True baptism is only what it is as an expression of sincere faith. Scripture teaches belief plus baptism. Mark 16, 16. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Scripture does not teach faith plus baptism. That is not a correct way to articulate what the Bible teaches. And so, this evening, let's look at the book of Romans, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And I just want you to listen to the wonderful and beautiful truth that the Apostle Paul here has to say about baptism. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Brothers and sisters, baptism is so far from being some kind of work that you deserve to, to receive some kind of merit for, word, you know, work, uh, wages for, reward for, you don't deserve it at all. And that's not what baptism is about. Baptism is about recognizing that I have not, cannot, and will not ever be worthy of the love and of the grace of the God whom I have spurned, whom I have hurt, whom I have wounded, whom I have rejected, against whom I have rebelled, against whom I have sinned. I deserve his wrath. We all deserve his wrath. We do not deserve his love and his grace. He is willing to give it to us anyway because of his love, because of what Jesus did by living the perfect life, by becoming the sacrifice, enduring death, being buried in the tomb, dead as he could be, but rising up on the third day to live again. And that's what baptism means. It is a beautiful and wonderful act of faith to go down into the waters with Jesus symbolically, dying to your old self, being buried with him, and raised up with him, symbolic of already being resurrected. You walk in newness of life because it's like you're already seated with him in heaven, Ephesians 2. And you wait for that glorious day when Jesus comes again. And our bodies really will be raised from the dead. And those of us who have been baptized into Christ will live with him in glory forever. The one baptism is literal immersion in water as an expression of faith in Jesus, symbolic of participating in his death, burial, and resurrection. It is administered by, through, and in the Holy Spirit. And it results in salvation, new birth, and admission into the body of God's people. The one baptism positions us in Christ together in one body filled with the Spirit. And so brothers and sisters, let's determine to practice this unity that our baptisms into Christ have created and let's determine to do nothing that will weaken and threaten its continuation. And in other words, let brotherly love continue. The lesson is yours. This evening, if you need to respond to the gospel invitation, either because you know that you are a sinner and you need to be saved by grace, you will be saved when you are plunged beneath 
the waves of baptism, symbolic of dying with Jesus, and you will be raised to walk in newness of life, added to the Lord's church. This evening, if you are a baptized believer that needs our prayers, the front pews are open. Come as we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.